0: Welcome to the Night Parlor. Welcome back to The Night Parlor. I'm your host, Joshua Rex. Today I'll be speaking to author Barry Lee DeJesus. Born two blocks from the birthplace of H.P. Lovecraft and educated in Shirley Jackson's hometown, Barry Lee DeJesus lives and writes in Providence, Rhode Island. His debut short story collection, Black City Skyline and Darker Horizons, was published in May 22 by Hippocampus Press. He has several published short stories, the most recent being MOTW from the 80s-themed horror anthology Totally Tubular Terrors, hard to say. Barry is a former music journalist for Modern Fix Magazine and a reviewer with New York Journal of Books. He lives on the east side of Providence. Barry, thanks for joining me in the night parlor.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, since it's uh, published just three days ago, uh, which I'm excited (laughs) to... uh, hopefully be one of the first at least guys to talk to you about uh, uh, your brilliant collection, Black City, Skyline, and Darker Horizons. Uh, This is your debut collection published by Hippocampus. Uh, It's an eerie, as I said, brilliant, unnerving group of stories, uh, many of which I had the honor of reading in draft form. Uh, Some of my personal favorites are Tripping the Ghost and Hello Is Someone There, which I read during lockdown and was thenceforth terrified of my own apartment. Thanks for that. Uh, Would you talk about the book's path to publication from the writing of the stories to the book's acceptance?
1: Well, my initial run with short stories, you know, it started way back in, I'd say, 2012 or so. Um, Even earlier than that, I think, actually. And You know, at the time, doing the probably pretty typical thing for a fledgling writer of just thinking, oh, this story is going to be great. No one's read anything like this before. This is going to be so cool. And then getting what was technically very constructive and helpful feedback and thinking, oh, no, my work is garbage. I can't write. This is terrible. This is tripe. I give up. But I just kept coming back to it. And I kept having ideas coming to me. And um, all kind of at the same time, uh, I was writing a story for an open call for the New England Horror Writers Anthology, Wicked Witches. Um, And I had this whole idea going for me of a story for that, and then it just kept crashing and burning, and I threw in the towel a couple of times, and then suddenly, I ended up having this one idea stick, and I wrote it, and I sent it in, and it got accepted. And after that, I was like, well, what's next? I gotta do more of this. And I just kept putting more effort into just thinking of other stories. And I think the next time it came around where I really wanted to complete a story to try to submit was incidentally for another story from New England Horror Writers, and that was for their Wicked Haunted book. And at that point, the same thing happened. Great idea, I thought. And then it just kept crashing, and I kept giving up and trying it again. And then I wrote something totally new and sent it in, and it worked. And... I guess you could say it's kind of like become my style, but at that point, that's when I already kind of knew some of the ideas I had going. Um, we're all kind of spreading out over each other and interblending with each other, and I ended up getting this whole idea of thinking organically about the whole thing. Like I sometimes have equated it to if the world gets blown up by aliens in one book and then the author's next book is a murder mystery set in a small cottage doesn't anyone remember that time the world got blown up by aliens that other time no just me okay and admittedly a lot of the um not just the marvel movies but various movies that now kind of just try to cash in by having shared universe shared playground kind of things where everything is interconnected just started speaking to me and making me think yeah that's that makes so much more sense that um you know all these events kind of crisscross applesauce even if they don't necessarily add up to a big team up like literally the avengers it just makes more sense that well why does this character have no arm well in this story they lost their coming to me the more i thought okay well how to bring all this kind of stuff together if i'm going to tell individual stories, how do I kind of tell them individually, but also tapping into a broader scale. And then I think it literally came to me because uh, a writer friend of mine, uh, Morgan Sylvia, said at one point, I would love to see a whole bunch of stories like the one she was just reading that all take place in this location. And I thought, hmm, that's actually an interesting idea. And then that's kind of what stuck with me. Where I finally just decided I want to take this whole broad approach and at the same time individual approach to my works and I ended up uh you know just working towards a collection even as I had a couple of other things published individually it became this uh internal assignment of mine of make it uh you know make this story definitely fit in with everything else but it also has to stand on its own two feet so no one has to have read anything to get it, but also if people have read it, then suddenly it's one bigger picture. And eventually I just kept working at it until I had enough for a collection. And then I was like, okay, how do I make this into one cohesive whole? And here it is.
0: Which kind of dovetails nicely into uh, my next question. Uh, as mentioned in your bio, you're, you're a Providence native through and through, born and raised. Uh, this collection is really centered around and in the city of Providence and features a a photo you took of the Industrial uh, Trust Company building, also known as the Superman Building to Locals, uh, the tallest uh, building in Rhode Island, just a little factoid for the listeners. Uh, This uh, picture that I'm mentioning is on on the cover of the book, Uh, beautiful cover, by the way. Uh, How has the city influenced and shaped your voice as a fiction author? And do you plan to continue writing stories based in Providence after this collection?
1: Um, To answer your second question first, absolutely I have a bevy of stories I want to tell that very much take place here and not really a spoiler, at least two um, that take place in the Superman building incidentally. Um, But also just the whole city has always kind of spoken to me because One of the things i've enjoyed most about it is you step out your door and you can do not anything but any number of things await for you outside you know just there's that store down the street there's that restaurant downtown there's that um there's that other business you need to go to across the city and uh it's all the interconnectedness of you know the buses and everything that can take you elsewhere it's kind of a central hub and so for me it's just all these uh, adventures, I guess you could say, waiting to happen, and also all these individual stories waiting to happen, and um, in no way am I commenting on uh, individual kinds of people, but going down to Kennedy Plaza here in the city, it's, you know, it's the central, first for listeners who might not know it, it's the central bus plaza in the city where, um, you know, it's all the different buses line up and come through there. And it's got its reputation for some of, you know, oh, Kennedy Plaza where all the weirdos hang out, et cetera. And to me, that just means, or that's just where all these individuals with their own stories that you don't know are, and we're only getting little glimpses of. And that's just kind of speaks to me about how my own work works, where just um, the events of one person's world completely changed that whole world for them except the person who just runs into them on the street might not have any clue and they might just think oh what's his problem um and just i love it like i love this uh rich and constantly varied and constantly changing nature of the city and it's it's just kind of exactly what i write about
0: yeah i definitely see what you mean by that everybody does have a story to tell right if we're open to that i know it's a cliche but it's really true uh And it can be really interesting. And from my own experience in Providence, I totally know what you mean about walking out the door being an adventure. That's one of my favorite parts about it. It's it's so, everything's so close. Uh, And I mean, the section of neighborhood that I live in, well, I'm about to move back to it's, you know, i be where, where can you go where it's just like right out your door? It was like, oh, this is this is this great youth used clothing store. And then there's an antique shop. And then across the way is a coffee shop. And then there's an art store. And this is all like within a few steps of each other. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to walk downtown, you're only about 25 minutes from downtown. It's, it's, uh, it's really remarkable in that way and just sort of a, a secret, right? In some ways, I think in New England, it's sort of the only city of its kind in that way.
1: <laughs> there literally are a couple of characters who recur in reappear I should say in a couple of my stories who are based on people I've seen around frequently and even long since then maybe I see them and they're not quite in the context or in the appearance or anything else that I used to sort of associate them with but I think to myself no oh, no. like but in my head you're always going to be there's a again no spoilers a strange fellow that I used to see around who would always wear sunglasses like these big wraparound sunglasses all day every day and he would always carry around a backpack and I'm like who is that guy and eventually I ended up writing him into my fiction and I've seen him even more recently and thought oh there he is but he's not like how I remembered him but (laughs) my version lives on
0: (laughs) sure right there there was a woman that I used to hear down by uh, the bus stations there. And it was always at night when I'd be walking through Providence and she had, she would, she was belting out this song every time I saw her. And I don't know what the song was. I still, I can't, I, it's still in my head after, after 20 years, it's the first time I saw her down there and I just can't get that song in my head. I, I can't find it. And I'm just guessing it's her song. And I, it's funny, it would have probably been a perfect character for one of your stories in that regard. <laughs>
1: exactly. That's just the kind of thing that I love so much about it. And it's, you know for for anyone that it's the thought of uh, the city you know all the the dirty city with the crazy people etc yes sure I get where someone's saying that kind of thing might be coming from but I also think ah the city just it's just so much color and so much uh interesting blend of different kinds of people and places and uh atmospheres all around it's just this endless palette for me.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. My partner and I talk about that as well. How great it is that uh, not only is it a diversity, but it's, it's age diverse, too. I love when you go to oh, public yes. events, you see people of all ages at so many events. It's, uh, it's really wonderful in that way. Um, getting back uh, to fiction here, though, uh, you and I have had several discussions about the subtle versus, I guess you'd call it the overtly visceral in horror fiction. Uh, I know that you tend to be in, say, more of the Robert Aikman camp when it comes to developing a story and characters and establishing an eerie mood. Uh, why, uh, what do you find appealing about this approach and why does it excite you as an author?
1: Um, I think having less is more as a approach is good because it leaves so much more for, the person perceiving it to make into like their own experience instead of coming out and telling you you know this psycho with the mask here is the killer and this is his name etc um you know that's like one thing um and it can be effective in its own regard but then for me personally it's so much more spooky when somebody tells you all about this one room what they're gesturing at with their, you know, with their hand that's right next to them in this open doorway, it's right through this room is where all these people were murdered. And sometimes people still think they hear whispering and shouting in there. And sometimes there's cold spots and, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot my watch in there. Could you go get it for me? And that image that's like sticking in your head and what it's doing to you. That's so interesting to me because it's just giving you, the homework basically it's giving you the not even the recipe it's just giving you a few of the ingredients and you're kind of stuck thinking to yourself what was this what does this mean and it's not necessarily a pretty picture or yeah even to make it more like puzzle pieces it's not necessarily a pretty picture you're putting together and do you want to really perceive it all or do you want to just kind of forget it um that's just so interesting to me
0: and you do bring the reader in, you know, for instance, that scenario you just described, you do bring the reader in by making them think, uh, well, all right, now this character is looking at this room and, and right, we, the character doesn't know what's in the room, but who, the reader is already starting to construct something about that room, right? You know, in, mm-hmm. in you know, his or her mind, what, what exactly is going on in there? So now when the, when the other character says, oh, I left something in there, can you go get it? Uh, now you're pulling, you're not only pulling that character uh, that the other characters talk to, but now you're pulling the reader into that room. So now there's real fear being drawn uh, drawn from two sources. So it's 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 a really interesting scenario. I think uh, a good way to outline that.
1: And I very recently, for the first time, discovered for myself the story "Knock" uh, by Frederick Brown, which I'd never before heard, but. Um, it came up somewhere where I was just checking out about different stories and things. And I think I saw someone used, uh, that as kind of like a launching off point for their own work. And I was like, what is the story? And what it was, was a one sentence or well, not one sentence, but, uh, no, it's a, a two sentence story and not like a lot of other things where they have, um, a two sentence horror story where it's kind of like a funny punchline almost, Um, where it's almost more like a twisted joke, if you will. Um, You know, like, I've got the body of a, you know, however many year old model, but doesn't fit in my freezer. Instead of something like that, it was this one story, which was um, the last man on earth sat alone in a room. There was a knock at the door. And that's the story. And it just raises all these questions and all this, wait time out what what are you talking about what does that mean and it's fairly ominous even though there's nothing really necessarily saying that's a bad thing but also why is he the only person left on earth and so who's knocking or what's knocking and just that kind of sticking a little splinter in your mind uh, style has just stuck with me and whenever I hear pretty much whenever I hear something's you know someone says it's boring because it's nothing happens my radar just perks up like oh what does that mean because that might be my cup of tea
0: (laughs) and and it seems like a lot of times those sorts of writers are very heavy on metaphor so you have to have a keen eye for for uh for that sort of approach I think and I mean take Aikman for instance the story swords and there's some Mm. it's it's just absolutely drenched in metaphor and you know and if you're able to I think uh you know, unlock that, uh, the story has this whole other meaning that's actually really rich. Uh, You just got to get inside the door on some of those stories, uh, because they're not as they're not always as cryptic as they seem. Uh, The the writer's writing about something I find often. Uh, You just got to unlock it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh,
0: Leading up to the release date of your book, you thanked a number of different writers that you admire uh, via Facebook. Uh, for what they taught you about the craft of fiction writing. Uh, These included Caitlin Kiernan and Ramsey Campbell, among others. Uh, Would you talk a bit about some of your favorite authors and how they've influenced your work?
1: Well, um, I mean, there's the world of writers who are no longer with us. And then there's writers who are fortunately still very much with us. And from those, the ones who are even better connected with me on social media um and part of it like part of my shout outs were kind of weighing that with okay well like there's this wonderful um writer john mantooth um who i wanted to make a shout out to because his work has been so instrumental for me because it's so steeped with mood and atmosphere and other things but He's not currently on Facebook, so I was like, well, like, can't say anything really to him, and the whole point is for them to be able to see my gratitude, but all that being said, um, with the ones that I did mention, I really had to think about who have said things or written things or done things that really jumped out at me and kind of made me stop and think about how I'm writing what I'm writing and how can I do that even better? Or how can I do my own kind of take from that? Um, so like Caitlin Kiernan, her work is so emotional and often such bizarre and extremely unsettling things are happening. And that's completely just back burner to what's going on emotionally so much of the time. Not always, but um. Where it's just like something terrible might be happening to the world around these couple of characters, but their emotional struggle with each other is what's front and center. And like that kind of uh, favoring of characters over setting, while at the same time keeping such a rich setting in mind. Um, so it still is like this immersion in this strange world. I just would read any of her works that are like that or similar and just think, wow, how the hell did you do that? And can I do anything like that? And short answer is probably not like that, but maybe my own version of something similar. Um, and then, you know, the good old legend, Ramsey Campbell, I just, he can literally make a description from a story about someone crossing a room, in a hotel and opening the curtains, the most terrifying minute and a half of reading you've ever experienced. And that's literally all he was just doing. And he will he's actually kind of helped me come to appreciate um, how, how horror can, not just horror and comedy can coexist so well and blend together, but sometimes horror is comedy and vice versa. And he's helped me kind of appreciate Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein more because he's made he, him and his works and that movie have kind of made me realize, oh, the author here isn't trying to scare the characters who are like oblivious to, in the Abbott and Costello case, the wolf man that's creeping into the room right behind him as he's writing a note without him knowing it. It's not about scaring them. It's about scaring you. And he's not trying to scare the characters at all. He's just trying to scare you, and it just makes me appreciate how the audience going in. It's like this audience knows horror fiction. They know the tropes. They know what they're getting into. So it's like, okay, well, what if you don't know what's coming? You know, never mind the characters. What if I just work on scaring you? And so um, that definitely has just resonated with me so deeply. With just my whole approach to how i make a scary scene more than just atmospheric or you know eerie but also how am i going to play with the reader as I do that and you know i mentioned five different writers i should have thought of doing this a lot sooner because i probably could have mentioned more and more and more people but it was as it such as it was it was five days before the release of the book and i thought okay well i'm going to start right now i'm just going to mention five writers who I'm connected with on Facebook, so I can publicly kind of thank them for doing what they do to kind of transform how I even think about doing my own thing. And I also just have to mention on that same note, um, Eric Nunnally with how he just opened my eyes to how you can just beautifully set the whole scene, setting and character and all, and then wrap it all up with just making that the opening paragraph of a story. And it just tells you everything you need to know going in while also completely setting the mood and setting the stage. And I just thought like, holy crap, how did you do that? Like I gotta, I gotta try to think like that and make my openings a little bit more interesting. And it's been an ongoing lesson for me. So that's kind of like my, my gratitude for all of them was just short as it was, and only as few of them as there were. I just had to do a few mentions of people who kind of helped shape the way I think about these kinds of things.
0: I think it was really unique and a great way to, uh, you know, to give thanks, but to acknowledge that, that that this is a process. That this is you know writing a book, writing a collection, watching this come to fruition is such a process, and there are a lot of people involved. Uh, You know, a lot of influences involved and I mean you're you're talking about you started writing some of these stories in 2012 so you're talking about you know 10 years now that this is a a work in progress, so I just thought it was a really it was a really neat approach. Uh, What are you gonna read from us or for us today Barry Um, I'm guessing something from black city skyline I hope.
1: yeah definitely and instantly it was also the one you mentioned as my most recent work prior to this um, being released uh MOTW um so just a quick backstory of it it was literally for a long time I thought um I was listening to this amazing song from this um synthwave electronica artist named Street Cleaner called MOTW and it was just pulsing with this really cool very low-key kind of creepy rhythm and it sounded very like on the surface active. And at the same time it was like tapping into like a much vaster sound. And I thought, I wanna write something about this someday, but what the hell does MOTW stand for? And I finally looked it up and was seeing all about how there was the whole history of it originated, I think um, from what I've read with um, The Outer Limits um, wanting to make their format for their show a monster of the week, or MOTW, to kind of differentiate them from the Twilight Zone, where it's more of like a mystery of the week, if you will. And so I was like, okay, monster of the week. Well, this is something here is sticking with me. And then when this uh, call came for this uh, 80s themed anthology, and I was approached by Jenna Moquin to do this uh, story, I thought, well, what would I write? That would be an 80s set story and i just kept thinking on it and then literally what started it all for me was this one song i really liked from the 80s and i figured how can i work that into a story and all this kind of just came together and i'll just read the first little bit of the story so this is a uh, motw he reached for the boom box and hit the pause button and the crooning melodies of World Party's Ship of Fools fell silent. He listened carefully, and smiled. The screaming was all he'd heard all morning when he wasn't blasting cassette tapes, but now there was, finally, blessed silence. He waited for a few heartbeats. His index, his fin, index finger extended to press the play button in case the screaming began anew, but seconds turned into a minute, and a minute soon gave way to three. The only sounds he could hear were the drone of cars and the warbles of distant emergency vehicles, the fan purring in the nearby window, and his own ragged, gentle breaths. He crossed the living room and through the door into the front hall. The building was vacant, and he walked without scrutiny to the stairwell and opened the door to cold, humid, stale air and silence, and descended. Robbie glanced up when he heard the bell over the door jingle, quickly averting his gaze from the tired-looking man in the mirror across from him to behold the visitor. The figure behind him appeared to have dully glowing yellow eyes that stared expressionlessly at nothing and everything, but as the visitor approached, his face and his actual eyes moved into view from beyond the spots of booze and juice and God knew what else was sprayed, splattered, and caked onto the mirror. Robbie smiled flatly and nodded at the approaching person, patron, cast his gaze to his right as a wrinkled manila folder was tossed onto the stained brass counter, followed by a pair of long, thin hands and a short, stocky abdomen that half-slid, half-twisted onto the stool beside him. Jeremy? Officer Robbie. Robbie rolled his eyes and took a big sip from his three-fourths empty glass. He'd been a detective since December, but Jeremy, who'd known him and his ambitions for the badge since they'd first met in East Boston High, always made fun of his advancing rank. How goes the pencil pushing? Oh, you know, pretty sure I have lead poisoning at this point. Jeremy, who had a habit of second guessing everything, had restarted his career plans at least three times in the past decade, although he'd recently seemed to have settled in at Boston Metro properties as a property manager. Robbie snickered, peering down into his glass as Vanessa sauntered over behind the counter. Her mane of curls was pulled up into a side pony against the sweaty mid-May heat and the bracelets piled around her wrist jangled noisily as she tossed a cardboard circle onto the counter. As it spun on its edges like an oversized coin, And she asked, What are you having, hon? Jeremy ordered his usual whiskey sour, and watched Vanessa's retreating form, then turned to find Robbie's attention was focused upon the droplet-level amber um, in the bottom of his glass. Last or first of those for you? Second. No guarantees it's my last, though. Talk to me. Robbie shrugged, glancing up as Bon Jovi came blasting over the radio behind the counter, which somebody cranked up as the talking war, talking guitar warbles began. He lowered his head and scoffed. His own, uh, his own prayers outlived by the, um, by the overplayed hit from the year before. Uh, not if I have to shout over this shit. Jeremy snickered, rubbing the tips of his thumb and forefinger down the corners of his mouth as Vanessa returned with his drink he looked up at her then pointed to robbie's empty glass and she nodded and scurried off for a refill when he turned back to robbie he shrugged something to keep you busy until the song's over robbie smirked as vanessa's uh, as vanessa returned i hate you he muttered after she left and jeremy snickered as he raised his glass in a toast after the song and several singing patrons concluded jeremy raised his brow at the already half-downed bourbon in robbie's glass So let's hear your three drink story. Robbie shook his head, downed a slug of bourbon and opened his mouth for what could have been a loud belch but instead only produced a quick shallow breath. Found another kid. Jeremy tutted, I'm sorry, man, dead? Robbie glanced up at Jeremy whose thick thick brows were knotted over his glasses. His beard-wreathed mouth curled into a frown. I wish. His shoes fell upon the metal steps with a series of echoing clangs and clunks as he, as, as he descended. The stairwell was growing damp with the advent of summertime and uh, sweat in the cooled, clammy basement, the beginnings of rust building up on the, wheel, on the welding. He paused on the landing, peering down at the dim space and the paler and darker shapes within it, then continued down. The walls seemed to glow softly in the pale murk cast by the fluorescent bulbs hanging on long chains from the ceiling a large lumpy mass of black fabric was piled up in one corner the stained concrete floor was smooth but for a few cracks that nestled uh, that nested silverfish and rodents and and for a perfectly round four foot hole cut uh, four foot wide hole cut into its middle he walked past the hole almost 10 feet away but as timid on his feet as if bouncing on a wire directly over it on its far side a filthy stained mattress had been cast upon the floor and atop it, face down, legs and bare feet resting on the concrete, lay the supine form of a little boy. He moved over the boy and crossed his arms over his chest. The kid's shirt was torn and ragged on the back, but the skin beneath was unblemished, as if a phantom whip had only marred the fabric. He held a hand out over him and snapped his fingers, but the kid didn't move. He repeated the sound a couple of times, and when nothing happened, he gently pushed his foot into the kid's side. He sighed heavily when the kid remained motionless, then relaxed when he realized the small abdomen was slowly rising and falling. After a moment, he crouched down and gently pushed his right hand under the kid's shoulder and pulled, twisting him over, then gasped and rose to his feet as the limp form dropped back down onto the mattress. He stepped away, turning to one of the concrete walls and tapping his foot for a couple of minutes. He turned back, cursed softly, then made his way back upstairs. He went back into his apartment, grabbed the phone in the kitchen, and dialed. She was one of those girls from the milk cartons you see everywhere nowadays. Robbie sniffed. Have you seen me? Please call. Last seen. Jeremy nodded. See them every morning over cereal. Robbie made a sound between a snicker and another sniff at this, and told the story of Hilda Sandwick, age six. She was last seen with her mother down at the Cypress Street playground about two weeks before. Mrs. Sainwick had turned around for one moment and felt her daughter let go of her hand. She tried to tell her not to do that, only to run into an elderly couple who were standing behind her, confused. No amount of quick thinking and quicker timing was enough to overcome the panic that ensued, nor to bear fruit in a frantic search that soon led to a whole police shutdown of the market to scope the area. Hilda was gone, and that was that. What happened to her in the week following could have been any number of things. Yet as for what did happen, when Robbie blinked, staring at a point that only he could see, Jeremy muttered, looks like you need another sip for this one. Robbie glared at him, but followed the suggestion. He set his jaw and muttered, she was covered in bugs. Jeremy flinched. Thought he said she wasn't dead, man. She wasn't. The street vendor over in Gloucester and Beacon found her wandering, totally out of it. He thought she was dirty at first. I mean, she was dirty, unwashed for an unknown number of days, some signs of battery, nothing sexual, fortunately. But that wasn't what made him drop everything and run out to her. It wasn't even the car that skid to a halt right beside her. It was the damn roaches and other bugs crawling around in her hair and on her person. The corners of Jeremy's mouth twisted down, and he nodded, glancing uncertainly into his glass, and took a quick sip. She got stuck in a sewer or something? or something see when a couple of officers showed up to look one of them was megan reiner remember her you were talking your head off at the fundraiser last oh right jeremy smirked she was bodacious robbie blinks slowly at this saving his criticisms of jeremy hip lingo for another day anyway she got over there shortly after the poor girl was found the vendor had not had kept an eye on her even when some uh, some punk swiped the tip jar right off his table because he was trying to clean her off. The bugs you see were all over her. I mean, all over in her hair, in her skirt, in her shoes, probably elsewhere. And they just kept appearing. The poor guy kept trying to brush them off, but they kept coming. It was practically like she was sweating them. Maybe she. Jeremy tried to think of something to say, then gave up and shook his head. Officers Reiner and Vintage show up and take her back to the station. Reiner stayed in the back of the car with Hilda to keep her calm not that she needed to do much. From the moment the vendor found her, the poor girl had been as silent and dead-eyed as a mannequin. But the whole time, those damn bugs kept crawling out all over the place. Reiner even said she thought they were coming out of her skin. And even though Reiner has a stomach of iron, even she had her work cut out for her. She swatted or picked off a few and threw them out the open windows, but more and more of them kept appearing. Roaches, like I said, but also spiders, beetles, uh, center... center... centipedes? Right he shook his head and after they got out of the station officer reiner even swore she saw a rat appear directly into the car which would be just about perfect if poor hilda had it crawling around on her person somewhere right so all they uh, so they all make it inside and even after they get into one of the rooms the damn bugs just don't stop jesus did they never stop eventually and suddenly they got hilda a blanket and some water and someone from children and youth services shows up with word that her mom is on the way And poof, like nothing, bugs are gone, all is well. He shifted, emitting a muffled, breathy belch, then spread his hands apart like he was holding up a rainbow. Poof, like, like where the hell were all those bugs coming from? The poor girl was wearing a teal skirt with flowers printed on it. Had one shoe. Hair came down to above her shoulder. There wasn't anywhere she could, you know, hide that many bugs, Jeremy. When Jeremy didn't say anything, Robbie shrugged again. Exactly. Jeremy uh, remained silent and took a short, shallow breath and said, wasn't there some woman in the 17 or 1800s that gave birth to a ton of rabbits? Robbie snorted and shook his head. Beats me. Weird as that was, that was hardly the issue. Where the hell had she been in the meantime? I don't know if they've uncovered anything since. He glanced up at the bar where a white rectangular clock advertising Miller beer slowly rotated secondhand. 337, give or take a minute. And even though she hadn't hardly even said a word, I'm not too worried about that yet. Why is that? Robbie exclaims uh, the remaining, uh, examined the remaining third of his glass then downed it in a single gulp because that wasn't the first case of its kind.
0: Wonderful, Barry, fantastic job. Uh, I think uh, we, we may have to reclassify what we said we were talking about earlier, of the subtle, the subtle versus the overly visceral. Maybe we could call this subtly visceral. <laughs> Very, uh, very, very creepy. Would you uh, talk a bit about your process as a writer? Uh, Specifically, I'm just wondering how long does it take you generally to complete a story? You know, work on a story from start to finish. And are you a are you a stationary or a roving writer? Are are you kind of stuck stuck at home in the desk, or you know, are you out and about writing in coffee shops and libraries
1: and such? Oh, I'm very much a roaming writer. I will. I tend to, uh, sometimes my stories will come to me while I'm out in the middle of work or the cafe. And then other times I'm home and I'm sitting there in front of the computer trying to think of something and some ideas stick, many don't. And as for how long it takes me to get these going, they, uh, I've written some within, like a week and a half or so and others that have taken me multiple weeks and often multiple revisions and um it's just it's all very organic and all very unpredictable and I'll sometimes go into a story with so much confidence of this idea is great this is going to work and then by the time I'm too frustrated to write even more than another word in it I'm just like it's still a good idea but It's not happening today. And um, recently, incidentally, with the publication of this book, I've been, I was grateful for the timing of that because I've been in a little bit of a dry spell where several things I've tried writing new have just kind of ground to a halt. And I'm like, I know they can work. I know this can happen, but this is not working right now. Um, And I'm kind of hoping This little bit of a break period is good for me to at least change gears and have one less thing on my mind of that i have to work on and that might help kind of clear the road a little bit but such as it is i bring my little note uh like writing journal with me at all times to work and back and often on the way to work i'll sort of stop and dictate into an email to myself of story idea xyz and then tuck it away for another time and sticky notes and everything in between. Well, the
0: process definitely sounds like a, an act of perseverance and uh, that's really inspiring. That's, that's what it has to be, right? You have to keep showing up.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, I've had people who've expressed interest in writing say, not just the thing of, I don't know if I can or I can't write, etc. And I've always just kind of pushed for people to remember there's no right way of doing it. There's just your way. And you just have to start doing it and you'll just get better on your own because it's the only way to do it. Yeah, well like, said. Whatever works for you. Right.
0: So how amazing was it to have T.E.D. Klein write the forward for Black City Skyline? And, and
1: how did that come about? Oh my God, it was such... a such an honor and like beyond my wildest dreams that it would actually happen you know i remember having a conversation with my father about that at one point of thinking maybe i could ask him about doing a introduction or forward to my book but then my father was saying well he might also be you know busy and doesn't want to like commit to that kind of time because he has to read your book too so maybe don't burden him with that And then I also had someone say to me, it would be such an honor for him because you're kind of giving him that kind of clout and gravity of you're so important. I want your send off on this to matter. Like if the great T.E.D. Klein wants to introduce this, then clearly it's gotta be good because he's here's an authority to say something on it. And so with all that said, you know, for those who might not know as much about him, he's this legend of a writer who I feel like would be as big as Stephen King had he kept writing more consistently. Um, but such as it was in the early eighties, he just wrote a novel called the ceremonies. And then he wrote a amazing novella collection called dark gods. He was the editor for twilight zone magazine for a long time. And wrote a number of other short stories over the years and then he just kind of faded until he just kind of disappeared but his books whether or not they were in print were still uh were still very well revered and people still thought he was such a legend and it was very much a finding Forrester situation if you will of like where did this guy go what happened he's still alive but why isn't he writing And so one day when I used to work at Brown University in their bookstore, I saw that he had appeared at Brown University to do a special presentation um, because he had been an alum from Brown. I thought, oh my God, I missed him and he was here. Uh, And I actually contacted the department that he had uh, appeared for and asked is he still here? Do you know if he's returning or is there a means to reach his publicist or something? And they were actually kind enough to put me in touch with him directly. Uh, and I just asked him flat out, you know, Oh my God, I'm such a huge fan, but are you still in Providence? And he said, no, unfortunately I've gone back home out of state and uh, you know, that was that it seemed, but we, we, kept in touch a little bit and he was honored that I, you know, thought of him and he felt like kind of surprised that I knew who he was and that sort of thing. And then at one point later on, I ended up asking him if he would be willing to do an interview for when I used to write for uh, shock totem magazine. Um, and he said, again, just like kind of a reluctance to, uh, be in the spotlight like that. But I, just asked to like. Well, what if we just did like a few questions at a time? And he very generously, you know, agreed to do this interview. Which, as time went on, um, he ended up doing a um, he ended up doing the whole interview. But then when I was done with it and had it published in Shock Totem, due to a miscommunication somewhere along the line, he had never ended up seeing the public, you know, the published uh, interview. And then, when it came down to uh, when it came down to it, I felt like I'd lost touch with him because when I tried to contact him to say, "Hey, I have a copy of the book; I can send it to you," he was just gone. It seemed. And then later on, I ended up having a chance to republish the story with um, with Dead Reckonings through Hippocampus Press, who my book came out from, and they were you know, super excited to have this interview and they were gonna, you know, republish it there. So I gave it a little sprucing up, just left it as it was and republished it. And then one day I received an email from him saying, you know, hey, nice to hear from you. Well, nice to see the interview in print, but I was under the impression that we did this for another magazine. Why is it in this one instead? I knew nothing about that because he was friends with um, with the publisher and ended up asking, you know, how did this happen? Cause he didn't even know about all that. And it turns out he just had a new email. So again, a miscommunication just sort of left both of us out of the loop. But then following that, we just kind of kept in touch. And uh, during the pandemic, I especially got worried cause he was living near New York. And I was, you know, with that being such an epicenter of the, the plague, such as it were, um i was checking in on him occasionally to see how he was doing and as i ended up writing my story uh hello someone there um he i asked him at one point not to read it but just i was telling him about the story and um i think i was just asking him what his thoughts were on similar stories and he ended up calling me out and saying like is this your your roundabout way of asking me to read the story. Cause if that's the case, I'd be happy to. And I was like, ah, uh, well, now that you mention it, that would be amazing. And with his blessings on it, that was already, you know, if that was the end of our interactions there, that would have been quite the honor. It doesn't even begin to cover it as a word, but it would have been, it was quite the honor as it was. And then finally it came down to getting the collection ready and, trying to figure out what this final product is going to look like and then I just started entertaining this idea again of oh what if I just ask him if he'd be willing to and maybe he doesn't have to read the entire thing just a couple of the stories but he just immediately said sure and he read it and I you know had to get caught from fainting on the floor because that just happened and here it is
0: well, it's a terrific forward, and uh, I can't think of a better author to, to introduce the collection. So, congratulations on that. That's-
1: Thank you so much. And he's been such a delight to be in touch with. And, uh, you know, it's been great to see his books being brought back into print lately, including also a wonderful collection of his nonfiction from Hippocampus Press, too um which he actually asked for my permission to reprint the our interview and so he's just it's great to see him being talked about again because he really deserves to be talked about a lot he's an amazing writer with such an amazing way of words and you know i'm glad that for also for people who might know me and not so much him that this might give them a little glimpse into this really unique writer and personality and want to check out his work too because if you if you're listening to this and you haven't read him you really should
0: absolutely so what's next for you barry uh with your writing uh and are you going to be attending necronomicon this summer
1: well i'm definitely going to be attending um from what i understand i'll be on hopefully be on a uh reading panel for for um new titles from hippocampus along with uh curtis lawson um but uh such as it is i don't know if i'm going to be helping participate with helping behind the scenes for the con like i've done in previous years or if i'm just going to go as a guest but i'll definitely be there for at least some of it um <clears throat> excuse me and so as for what's next I have pretty much made up my mind uh, even as I was saying about being indecisive with stories and that sort of thing. Um, It's now just a matter of staying focused and figuring out what's best for these stories. But um, I have a plan slash ambition to do sort of a novella collection of four, although I've at times entertained possibly five um, novellas that are all Again, individual stories, but in this case, much more intimately tied in with each other as they all sort of tell separate aspects of a larger story. And not so much like a broken up, you know, here's part one and part two and part three and part four of don't call it a novel. It's more like here's these characters and this whole story that has affected them. And now here's these other characters and this other story. That affects them which also kind of ties in with the events of the first one and it's i keep calling it sort of a deconstructed novel um and it's much more of a much more of a tightly woven setup than what i've done with my short stories here because i'm following not necessarily one story but a lot of events that kind of tie into one another in this case and beyond that all. Get back to you about what the details are
0: <laughs> sounds thrilling uh well barry it's been fantastic to have you on the show thank you so much for joining me today uh for our listeners um please go out and get this collection it's uh i can't recommend it highly enough hippocampuspress.com you can get it there also uh of course on amazon uh, like everything else in the world uh <laughs> but you'll uh you'll be pleasantly surprised by this collection barry thanks again for for being on the night parlor
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me here, Josh. This was terrific and look forward to speaking with you again soon.